On this episode, chihuahuas, hobo jungles, astrology cults, and route finding in Alaska. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Today, we are uh, very lucky to have a prolific adventurer, uh, writer, and all-around awesome human being, Carrot Quinn. Carrot, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Well, why don't you do a much better job than I just did of introducing yourself to everyone? Oh, um, uh, well, I, I've written two books. One through hiking will break your heart was about my first long distance hike. And I think that book is good because I think there's something about when you're a total noob, um, how everything goes wrong. I think that makes like the best story. And then I think when you've, uh, gotten better at something, it, the story is not quite as good. You know, I think there's something about like the beginner experience. It's like so captivating. So I think, I think that story is entertaining for that reason because I just, you know, was so new to everything and it was like so fresh and everything went wrong and I learned a lot. And then uh, I have a book that just came out in July called The Sunset Route and it's uh, it's about my years riding freight trains. And I, I think of it, I don't know if anyone else sees it this way, but I think of it as being about my relationship with my mother. So that's how I feel about that book. Uh, but it's also like an adventure, you know, about it's about like riding freight trains, um, which I did in my early 20s and I don't do anymore. But that was also a, a special time in my life full of adventure. So, yeah. And then um, I used to long distance hike a lot. I don't much these days, honestly. Um, I bet I do a lot of other interesting stuff that's just like my life, I guess. I, I feel like when I used to long distance hike like five months a year, it was like, I was like, I'm a long distance hiker, but also it was kind of boring. <laughs> and now I'm like, actually, I, I really like my life now and I do a lot of stuff, not just that. So that's cool. Um, but yeah, I'm in Alaska right now and I have two chihuahuas, which is also important. Um, <laughs> yeah. And what are their but names? Most important. Yeah. What are most important thing about me is that I have two chihuahuas. <laughs> their names are... <laughs> The, the thing I'm most proud of in life. Um, their names are Kito and Kanikanik, and they're uh, one of them's not very smart, and the other one's very aggressive because that's just how chihuahuas are, but uh, they're very good otherwise. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, unfortunately, I kind of know how chihuahuas are because I am literally surrounded by chihuahuas in my building. I kid you not, cross the hall. And then on the other, like next door, have chihuahuas. So I get greeted by chihuahuas whenever I walk into my built my uh, my my condo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, I think the great thing about dogs, any dogs, are that they well, potentially a great thing is that they are you are their life. You know, it's like they are so dependent on you for everything. You know, for food and for exercise and for um, you know, just interaction and love and affection and all of those things. And, um, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. What's that, that thing where you fall in love with your captor? Oh <laughs> yeah. Stockholm. Uh, Stockholm, Stockholm syndrome. syndrome. Yeah. yeah. They have Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very uncomplicated kind of love. Yeah. 
and unconditional, which is which is nice, yeah. right? It's yeah. very unconditional, yeah. and it's just it's one of the simpler things we have in life, you know. It's the love of a dog. So, well, again, since it's your new book and and it's just coming out, why don't we talk a little bit more about that? What what you know made you want to write about it? That time in your um, life. Well, I've always had this uh, impulse to like when I have like a exciting adventure to write about it. I don't know why do why do people want to make art out of stuff? It, it, I'd be curious to actually know where that compulsion comes from but I used to write a zine in my early 20s which is where you just like uh print your writing and make a little paper booklet and then like try to sell it to people (laughs) that's what people did before uh like all these different social media platforms that was like the original self-publishing they still exist yeah they still exist but now they're like I, I still make them sometimes, but now they're like niche uh, luxury items because you don't have to get this. Usually you don't have to get someone's writing through a zine, but back then it was like one of the only ways to self-publish. <laughs> so um, I used to make those. And then, so a lot of my train stories originally were in those because that's when I was writing freight trains. So I'd like write this scene with all my exciting stories of like hitchhiking and riding trains because I it's not in the sunset route, but I hitchhiked across the country a couple times. I hitchhiked to Alaska twice. Like I did all this hitchhiking. Anyway, I would put all these stories in the zine. And then uh, over the years, I was like, well, I want to take these stories and make something else out of them. So I kept rewriting them and trying to make a manuscript, but it was just like chaotic and kind of all over the place. And um, so I've been working on it for like 14 years. Wow. Then I also wanted to write about my relationship with my mother and my childhood because those years of riding trains and hitchhiking was kind of, I was kind of like running from all of this like grief and running from uh, like needing to process uh, my feelings about that. And so I wanted to kind of put them together into a book to bring it all for full circle and kind of make this story of this person who was like kind of, yeah, like processing or like running from processing these things. And then eventually, you know, the character who I guess is me, like does process them. And um, yeah, so I thought that would be nice. And then I wrote it and now I'm like, really sick of writing about myself and really excited to write some fiction. (laughs) But yeah, that was the desire, the urge, I guess. Is the zine sort of like pre-blog even? I mean, in some ways, yeah. Yeah, because so, I, I was started making the zine, I think, in 2005. Okay, yeah. And then I started blogging in 2008. And that's when I stopped. Okay. So I guess I made it for three years. And then I stopped because I discovered blogging. And I was like, yeah. oh, this is so much easier. And so in the Sunset Route, so did those stories sort of make their way? Did some of the zine stories and blogs kind of make their way into that story? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of it is in there. It's not all in cool. there because... The stories in my zines got pretty repetitive. I mean, it's kind of like with long distance hiking. It's like you can only write about, you know, walking down the trail so many different ways, you know. So um, a lot didn't, a lot got cut because it was like just really, it was going to be really boring and repetitive. Um, but yeah, I, I like to think that the best ones made their way into there. Yeah. Nice. And, and now do you, do you think you want to start writing fiction or do you want to continue with nonfiction just about someone else? I mean, you, do you want to keep writing? Yeah. Even? I want to, I want to write fiction. I think, cause with nonfiction, you, I mean, I think, I think when you're limited, when you have limits on like a creative medium, it's really helpful. Like it can be really helpful to making work if there are limits on what you can do, but I'm, I'm pretty tired of the particular limits that are on nonfiction. I think they're kind of like keeping me, I'd like to grow as a writer and 
with fiction, you're, you're just very free, you know, like nonfiction, you, you can't talk freely about people, you know, unless you want to destroy your relationships. Uh, <laughs> and you also like, uh, you know, you have to stick to things that actually happen. So, so you have the things that actually happen and then you take those and you shape them into a story, but you can't just like make up whole characters and, uh, do different things. And then, yeah, you can't really, you can't like just say whatever you want to say. So I, I want to write fiction because a, I want to turn people in my life into characters <laughs> and combine people with other people to make new and interesting characters. I want to put parts of myself into characters and um, I also just want to make shit up. <laughs> so, so I started writing this uh, uh, speculative fiction novel i i kind of stopped but i was working on it a lot this last winter um i'm taking a break this summer from writing i think so i'm gonna keep working on that and i don't know what i'm doing but it's really fun it's super fun uh but it's about this young person who's fleeing this uh city that is uh it's sort of collapsing and um, the state is sort of using the last of its resources to sort of, uh, police people in cities in the U S and, um, like the countryside is just kind of a free for all, but also not very inhabited because supply chains, global supply chains have been pretty much destroyed and it's hard to access a lot of different resources. And most things you can only get if you're in cities and then you can only get with great difficulty. So if you're living rurally, you have, it's, you're not connected to any supply chain. So it's extremely difficult to live. So rural areas in the U.S. are like pretty desolate, but this young person living in the city wants to leave she wants to flee and someone tells her about Nevada and she's never left the city. She's lived there her whole life. And this person tells her that if she gets to Nevada, that there's some people living there uh, that she can go join and sort of be free. So she steals a bicycle and just starts riding across the country. And it's this like, you know, post collapse landscape. So that's fun. Oh, and she has a Chihuahua, which is the most important <laughs> part of the book is that she has yeah. a Chihuahua. Of course, not that far from the truth with food deserts, you know, that's a thing in America. I mean, maybe not everyone knows yeah. about, you know, there are like big rural areas where they don't have a supermarket, you know, they don't yeah. have access to medicine, you know, in hospitals or hundreds of miles away that didn't used to be that way. So that's, that is a recent thing. Yeah. When, once you start thinking about what would happen if supply chains collapsed, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so she has a chihuahua. The chihuahua's name is the dog. And it's fun. It's really fun to write. She hasn't made it very far. Her first stop was this abandoned KOA. And there was this astrology cult living there. Oh. And they, they read her chart and decided that she was evil and imprisoned her and she had to escape. Oh, cool. Oh my yeah. <laughs> but she got out. Carrot, when you're writing fiction, do you you talked about like writing some of your friends into characters in the fiction? Do you do you worry at all that they're going to recognize themselves and and say, "Hey, that's me," you know, and and be shocked or surprised or offended? No, I I change a lot of stuff. I don't. I guess there's no one who's like really like just straight up copy and pasted into the book or into things I want to write that are fiction. I think I just like, I take someone's essence. Like 
one person, mm-hmm. for example, um, and it's often people who I uh, haven't didn't know for very long. Like I once trim weed for this woman who is like always stuck in my head as this like person who would be a character in a book. She was this aging hippie with like long silver hair and she was really beautiful. And she wore like all this blousey clothing and carried everything in a basket. And she was like a total sadist and like, like just horrible to work for, like would just dry, would just break you down. And she had this reputation as being like that. But it was so funny because like aesthetically she was like this like hippie lady. Um, But she was like, not what you would expect. Yeah. Yeah. But she was really cruel. I didn't work for her very long. I was like, I got to get out of here. But, uh, Yeah, so she was just this, like, character, and and she's just stuck in my brain for years as someone who would be in a book. And then, yeah, I've just, I've taken other people and sort of taken, like, their essence or, like, parts of their lives and created characters or just, like, made things up, you know. Or, like, you know, I like to create characters that would maybe be like me if I made different choices, you know. I feel like it's fun to, like, it's cathartic to, like, play with, like, different versions of things. So, but none of your friends are in an astrology cult, though, right? That's no, but but you know, when I was, I think I was nine. I was way too young. I saw the movie Death Becomes Her in theaters. Oh yeah, yeah. And it like stuck in my subconscious. I think because I was too young to see it. But I don't know if you all saw this movie. But there's this character who gives Meryl Streep the potion. Yeah. And she's got like a black bob. Yeah. And she wears a shirt. She's topless, but she's wearing this sort of shirt made of jewel necklaces. Isabella Rossellini is the actress. Yeah. yeah. The character's name is Lyle, apparently. Anyway, yeah. I wrote her as the leader of the astrology cult. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a that's a Robert Robert Zemeckis, right? Why Nevada? As I was when I <laughs> when I started writing this book, it was uh, last fall in September, and I was living in my van in Nevada, kind of exploring for a few weeks and going, I'd never spent time, never really spent time in Nevada. And it was smoky everywhere. But for some reason where I was in Nevada, the smoke wasn't that bad. And I was going to these hot springs and they were incredible. And there was just all this open land and there were wild burrows everywhere and they would drink from the hot springs. And I looked into it and I guess the wild burrows there, they were originally released by like miners in the 1800s, but they filled this ecological niche that used to, be filled by wild horses in the u.s wild horses uh had like they were wild horses there's wild horses now in the u.s that were brought by people colonizing and then before that there were no no horses and then a long time ago there were i guess there were horses maybe they were hunted to extinction i don't know anyway once upon a time before the recent horses there were wild horses in nevada and then that niche was just empty and these wild burrows, what they do is they eat the reeds that grow in the springs, so they keep the springs open. And without the burrows, uh, like land management agencies were having to go and like dig out the springs all the time, so uh, animals would be able to drink. And I looked it up, and burrow milk is apparently like really good for you, and burrow meat is apparently like a good thing to eat. So I was like, what if people were living in Nevada after this collapse that maybe is coming someday and drinking burrow milk? And that's where I had the idea. Oh. Well, according to the PBS documentary I watched like a year or two ago, um, yeah, horses actually evolved here in North America and they were hunted to extinction. And then, yeah, and then they were like domesticated 
and raised on like the steppe. So like Mongolia and that area. And then obviously from there into Europe and then the Spanish and whatever brought them over here. So sorry. Oh, I'm just, cool. I'm just going to be a nerd. That's yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah. That, you know, what else originated in the Americas were dogs. Really? Like every, every, are they canids? Every animal that yeah. is a dog, they all evolved from an animal that came from the Americas. Oh, wow. Interesting. I, I did not yeah. know that. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Um, we are an outdoor podcast, so I think we do have to talk a little bit about your hiking. Sorry. I know even if you're, you've moved on a little bit from writing about it and whatever, um, tell us about some of your adventures. What, so what I've been into lately is that I found really fun is um, I feel like something stays interesting when you're like learning and growing, you know? And so for a while I was like, okay, how can I, what's like really what's a way I can keep hiking, but I'm still like learning and growing. So it keeps it like really exciting. And I really love making routes now and I don't make very long routes. And, uh, you know, I'm not making like 800 mile routes or something, but when I'm in Alaska, I like to look at, um, different areas, like different areas people tell me about, or someone's like, Oh, this place has this cool Ridge or this place is like this cool Valley. And I like looking at, the maps and looking at Caltopo and looking at slope angle shading and all these different tools and um, also talking to people and being like, what pass do people, because in Alaska, not that much stuff is online, which is kind of cool because um, it forces you to kind of be in relationship more in order to get information. Uh, so you have to actually talk to people and, um, you know, find someone who knows the area and be like, what passes do people go over here? Or like, is this ridge walkable or, you know, different things. Or, le or, like, find, like, details about, um, yeah, if a trail like, even exists anymore. Anyway, I like sort of picking an area here and putting together. So far, I just do, like, a couple day routes. Last summer, I made a 70-mile one, and some friends and I hiked it, and that was really fun. Um, the cool thing about Alaska is tree line is really low. So in south-central Alaska, where I am, once you're above 3,000 feet, you're in the alpine tundra. So you're starting at sea level and the mountains are like five or 6,000 feet. The ones I hike in, I mean, there's taller mountains in Alaska, obviously, but I don't really go hike on those ridges. Um, you know, I'm not like hiking on like a whatever, 15,000 foot ridge or something. Um, but so as long, if you're above 3,000 feet, the walking is good, essentially. Like you're, there's no brush, there's no trees. So you can, and there's like ridges upon ridges upon ridges, just like, mountains layered on mountains and so you can just find an area you like and figure out how to get above tree line and figure out if the ridges are walkable and then you can create a route so that's really fun and I feel like there's a lot of different it involves like a lot of different senses almost and a, a more like complex way of thinking where you're like you have to learn because you know every area in the world is different like there's so many little niches and in every little area you have to be like where is the water here you know like where are there trees where is it swampy where is the walking good like um where are the rivers too big to cross and I think it's really it just like makes me feel really close to the land and like it's also kind of a fun game you know uh so I really like doing that Karen, it sounds like a very different experience than a trail like the PCT, for example, which is a known quantity. I mean, you know, it's well marked, it's well, you know, the tread is there. There's not a lot of thinking about 
you know, route, there's no route finding or, you know, sorting out the details of that sort of thing. And, and it's so documented. Um, would you say that that's sort of part of that shift, you know, like, oh, you, you know, you've done some of those long trails and it's more fun or more interesting or more challenging to, to do your own, you know, kind of choose your own adventure. Yeah. I mean, I loved hiking the PCT. I think when the PCT was most exciting for me was the first time because then I was learning and growing because even though you don't have to think so much about staying on the trail, there, there, you're learning so much in the beginning, you know, like you're learning like, oh my God, so much goes into being able to walk all day, every day, you know, from like your food to your gear to like how your body breaks to uh, heat exhaustion to staying hydrated to like... Um, you know, staying like protecting yourself from the wind and the sun and the rain. And like, so I, I was really like learning and growing and being challenged because I hadn't, you know, in 2013, when I first hiked that trail, I hadn't done anything like that. And so it was really great. But then I hiked it again. And then I hiked at the CDT, I hiked the CDT, which is similar. It's like all you're doing all day is walking, you know. And um, by then I had figured that stuff out. So I, I was like, I just didn't have anything to think about all day, you know, and I, it's not fun for me to really do a trip where I uh, don't have anything to think about, you know, and so then I started doing routes like the Hey Duke and uh, the Kings Canyon High Basin route and the Wind River High route and the Mugian Trail and these different trails where you are problem solving, which makes it really fun, but you're doing the route that someone else came up with. So that is all there for you, mostly, although those you know they give you less information so it is more of an adventure you get to do more problem solving for yourself and then I think I I was really intimidated by Cal Topo but then I uh in 2018 I wanted to traverse the entire Brooks Range across Alaska and which is doable a couple people do it every year but in the Alaskan Arctic it's discouraged to share routes because for for several reasons one of them is that there aren't that many places left in the world where there are no established routes. So to preserve the nature of that adventure of making your own route. Another one is to make sure that people who go out there are really prepared to be in such a remote place, which is, I mean, that's, it's kind of gatekeeping, you know, but I guess it is what it is. And then another is that if a bunch of people walked in one spot on the tundra, it could create a trail. So, uh, I had to make my own route. So I found a few people who'd done the traverse and uh, I was like, when I'm done making this route, can I send it to you and you can look over it and tell me if I like fucked up in a major way. And they were like, yeah. So I spent months like uh, I'd never done anything on Keltopo. And I'd always thought that making routes was like this magic, like impossibly difficult magic. And then I started playing with Keltopo and because of the technology we have now, it's actually, it is really accessible. Like if you can learn you know, if you can learn to navigate the Hey Duke using Gaia, you can learn to make a route on Caltopo. Like, uh, Caltopo, I think, is a little, a little easier than Gaia, even. And so I made this route and sent it out, and and I had to like get a lot of information to make the route uh, from a lot of different sources, and it took a couple months. And then I sent it to two people who'd hiked it, and they were like, they corrected parts of it. They were like, you know, you could go over this pass, but here's the pass I went over. And I was like, yes, sweet. Uh, (laughs) And then uh, I attempted it with my friend, but that summer 
the weather in the Arctic was pretty bad. Like it just wouldn't stop raining. And normally on the Alaskan Arctic, the river crossings are the most dangerous part of backcountry travel. And that year, since it wouldn't stop raining, raining the river crossings were insane like so insane and I was there with my friend Bunny who's she has been a whitewater kayak guide so she's really experienced with rivers so she was like teaching me a lot about river crossings while we were out there but then she hurt her ankle which is really understandable because the tussocks they just kind of like twist your ankle all day and so she had to bail and I thought I'd continue by myself and then I was like I'm not gonna cross these rivers by myself also it wouldn't stop raining and it kind of sucked being out there so I just kind of didn't want to be out there so we we only did 11 days of the walking part and then we skipped ahead to the two-week paddle at the end and we did the paddling part so I didn't finish it but that I didn't finish like walking the route but that was my first experience like trying to make a route and I was like this is really fun and I think uh more people could definitely do it I think people are maybe intimidated by it which is understandable and also there's so many trails that already exist and so many people making routes that are really good you know yeah i don't know if you know this we do have this in common i uh i did do the no attack river i uh, oh cool yeah so i i, I know uh brooks range obviously and you did it as well if i'm not mistaken i seem to remember on instagram a few years ago being excited when i was seeing you posting pictures of uh, the no attack river i'm like i've been there yeah because you know? not many of uh, not many people have been it's pretty I mean, it's fly in it's it's pretty up there <laughs> yeah i mean i learned that summer i was like oh right the reason not that many many people hike in the alaskan arctic is it's very expensive to get here. yeah no absolutely <laughs> but, but it was yeah but it was that was really fun because I'd never paddled before and that river is like class two. So it was a great sort of beginner river, but also so remote and beautiful. So it was a really cool trip. Yeah, no. And, and, and again, you know, we, we were on the river the whole time. We didn't do, you know, we day hiked, but I, but like your, the, the tussocks and crossing those. And just again, like you said, it's choose your own adventure and, it, and it's pretty easy traveling. I mean, you just go, I want to go on top of that mountain. And, you know, there's there's some sharp bridges, not really so much around the no attack, but in other places in the Brooks Range. But it's pretty amazing. You just w- pick a mountain and you walk up it and it's 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 uh, really not that hard going and it's really gorgeous up there. Yeah, you the the hard part is how squishy the ground is, because the tussocks can be a nightmare and the ground can also like suddenly turn into a bog. So it is. You are in the Brooks Range, you are almost entirely above tree line. There is almost no brush. And that is great, but it can be some of the hardest walking I've ever done also because of how squishy it is. I can imagine because I mean, it was bad when we, some of the parts were bad when we did it and we had it like a regular year. It was actually quite dry. So I can only imagine like if you add like a lot of water to it, how, how impossible to move through that stuff it would have been. <laughs> I've, I've gone back a couple times since then for trips. And even on a year that's not super wet, uh, you can be walking and you can be like, okay, this, this tundra is firm. And then like a quarter mile later, you can sink up to your knees in a bog and be like, damn it. <laughs> so what's your footwear strategy, Carrot, when you're, go- when you're going through that diverse tr- terrain? Oh, just Brooks Cascadius. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know what else you would do because they, uh, you know, trail runners are great because they dry out. Uh, but your feet are just wet like all day. I think uh, taking my shoes off every opportunity I get to try to dry my feet. That's what I yeah. do. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, I've got a, going back to your first PCT through hike and your first book. Um, through hiking will break your heart. I have a, a little bit of a small world story to share here. Um, 
the cover for that book was was designed by uh, Rocket Llama, right? Yeah. And I worked with her aunt for a number of years. So that was kind of an odd little connection, I thought. And anyhow, it's a, oh, cool. it's a great book, a great story. And I think one of the things that I took away, one of the takeaways I had from that book was sort of the um, post-hike malaise you know it's like you're on this trail which you describe as you're on, you know on a linear path literally you don't turn left or right you're following this you're moving along this path like a dot almost like a a two-dimensional sort of life in a way and then at the end you're like well now i go any direction i can go here or there i can do this or that and um how did that strike you and what what was that like and how did you i mean obviously you've done you went back into the pct again but you know what talk to us a little bit about that uh, experience yeah i think uh i think one of the reason post-trail depression so the first year i hiked the pct i think it still to this day it was the most fun i've ever had in my life that hike uh and afterwards, I got really depressed for like six months. And I and I, I didn't get that depressed after any hike afterwards. And I think part of the reason I got so depressed, and maybe this contributes to depression for other people too, is uh, malnutrition. <laughs> because I didn't do a very, I was still figuring out my food. It kind of took me that whole trail. I still, by the end, I still hadn't quite figured out my food. Um and I think I was pretty malnourished by the end, like probably depleted of some minerals in a pretty intense way. And I think that can, I think that was a big part of it. Like I was just like exhausted and like so sad, uh, you know, and I also had other signs of um, kind of like intense overtraining. Like I would get like Charlie horses in the middle of the night that would like wake me up like cr horrible muscle cramps, you know, things where I was like, oh, I'm like kind of malnourished. Uh, and after that, I did a much better job of, like having nutrition on trail and I never got quite as depressed. And another theory I have, I don't know if this is true, but when you're hiking all day, every day and it's pretty arduous, you know, you're just releasing a flood of endorphins into your body. And I think that we, uh, at first, you know, when you exercise, it makes you feel high. Like you go running and you feel really good. I think when we through hike for five months, your body something happens something changes like I don't know if we like lose endorphin receptors or we stop releasing as much endorphin but it sort of normalizes like that much exercise sort of normalizes for me and it stops making me high and what happens instead is when I don't exercise I feel terrible <laughs> so it's sort of like my body become my body needs like way more endorphins to feel good than normally and so when I finish finish that trail and I wasn't exercising like that I think that was also part of my depression is I'd gotten used to this like constant drip of endorphins throughout the day and my body had like adjusted to that you know so and then another thing was yeah the sort of existential bit where you I mean the world we live in now is pretty demoralizing you know it can be very demoralizing like spiritually and it's hard to make meaning. It's hard to like find a meaning and, you know, making meaning is really important. 
And on the PCT, the meaning is like really clear. It's just made for you. And you're sort of free to like just enjoy being alive in the woods, you know, for five months or however long you have this like break from this existential despair that we have in late stage capitalism on planet Earth in the year of our Lord, 20, whatever. Uh, and so then... It, it's pretty rough to be like put back. It's kind of heartbreaking to be put back into the world and be like, oh, because you get a glimpse of something different. You know, you get a glimpse of a way of being that probably for most of human history, we probably more often felt the way one does while through hiking than the way we do in the world now. Like, you know, it's all about just making your little life in the woods you know, like making sure you have enough to eat and a warm place to sleep and are protected from the elements and, you know, your friends if you're into like making friends on trail and that kind of thing. So that's pretty sad afterwards. So now um, it's kind of interesting because you just don't really talk to many people anymore that, you know, do jump trains. I mean, I don't know if it's derogatory or a bad word now, but like basically hobo, right? I mean, that's essentially the life you're yeah. living. I don't Again, I don't know if that's bad or good anymore because I just don't even really know anyone that's done it. That's such a unique choice. Like, how did you find yourself doing that? What, what made you want to go out and live that life? Well, it, yeah, it's true that it is. It's kind of an invisible thing. I think I think people still do it because... I still see people that I'm like, oh, you're, uh, you're like riding the trains. Um, but it is, it's never very many people. I think it is pretty like niche. I, when I was 19 and I moved to Portland, I fell in with these straight edge anarchists who were really into it at the time. It was like pretty popular. Uh, I don't remember why we thought it was great. I think, you know, people are always trying to find lifestyle choices that will like absolve them of the guilt of existing in this world. You know, we're all trying to just feel better or feel like we're not complicit, you know, and whether it's like, uh, not using straws or, uh, being zero waste or like, you know, any lifestyle choice where you can sort of like maybe feel a little bit less like you're part of this <laughs> but for some reason we thought riding trains was that like I think we were we were really into not using fossil fuels it felt like peak oil was like really imminent and so we didn't drive cars obviously and we rode bikes but then riding trains kind of fit in with that because we weren't consuming fossil fuels like the train was already going where it was going so riding it exempted us from consuming fossil fuel and also the fact that it was a little bit that it was illegal but in a low-key way was also fit in with our sort of ethos <laughs> which is funny I don't know why we were we were just into sort of being like we're outside the system man so doing something that was like low-key illegal fit in with that so I learned from them and I think that that was that was the first kind of like uh kind of adventure travel adventure I ever had in my life and I was pretty hooked because I'd never really traveled. And also it felt so empowering to do this thing that was illegal and kind of dangerous and travel in this way. And it's also a very romantic way to travel. I mean, traveling on a train is very romantic. You know, you go through parts of the country. You're not, you're often not near the highway because the train tracks and the highway were built in different spots for different reasons. And so the train will take you into different places than you would if you were driving on the highway. That's really cool. And you get to see the sort of, I don't know, just more remote parts of the country. And it feels like kind of romantic in a way. So 
yeah, it was just really fun. And like, how far did you travel? I mean, did you go all the way across the country? Did you like the whole coast? I mean, did you stay out west? Yeah, my first long train ride was from Portland to Texas. So that was pretty far. And then I traveled from Portland to Chicago a couple times. And then there was this other route that was like, it was like Portland. I think I went like Portland to Nebraska or something. I don't know. Anyway, I did a few routes like that and then some smaller bits like um i rode the train in british columbia with a friend and up there there's like this spiral tunnel that it goes through and it's really cool and i rode the train in north carolina and, and a couple of places i like tried to ride the train and like didn't go anywhere because if you if you don't have good i guess i could call it beta now if you don't have good beta because you have to find someone who's ridden a route you want to go and basically get the information from them like where to catch the train and what it'll look like and all these different things. And if you don't have that, it's really hard to get the train you want that goes where you want. So you need that app called there. There's an app for that, right? There's an app called all rails. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) When I was riding trains, I didn't even have a smartphone. Um, So often I had no idea where I was and I made a lot of the wrong choices and I was often totally lost, which is what life was like before smartphones, which is hard to remember. Um, but I would not be surprised if now there was more information for people writing. They don't, they don't have a Thomas guide for trains. That that was what I always used before, uh, before I had the phone. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Would you say that some of the things that you, or some of the skills you learned from, you know, writing the trains were you were able to carry over into other areas like through hiking, for example, you know, just sort of like problem solving and figuring things out. Yeah, I think that riding trains was the the part that felt like what I stopped riding trains in 2009 because I was like, I am too old for this because most of what you do, you do in the middle of the night. Like you'll wait for a train until like 2 a.m. or 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. And there's a lot in that time. There's a lot of like running around the yard, like hiding from the rail cop and hiding from workers, which is exciting, but it's like a lot, you know, to do that at like 2 in the morning. And so... I loved the adventure and I loved the travel. My favorite part was always though, like sleeping in nature. And when I was, when you're waiting for trains, you find this spot called the Hobo Jungle. That's like a place in the trees where the ground is all trampled and there's usually like cardboard spread out. And you can tell that that's where people wait for trains. And it's a really peaceful place to to sleep. And I'd never done that. Just like travel around the country, sleeping in the trees, you know? And so It was so peaceful and magical and romantic. And when I learned about long distance hiking, I was like, I was like, that's like the best part. The part I liked best about train riding, which was the traveling across the country and sleeping in the trees, but without having to do it at two in the morning and without having to play cat and mouse with the rail cop uh, and without all the diesel exhaust. (laughs) So, uh, so it, it was really exciting. I was like, this is like, what I've been looking for. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if the skills transferred. I had, yeah, I had to learn new skills for sure. Um, but definitely the like, the enthusiasm transferred for sure. And Carrie, did you grow up in Alaska? Yeah, I was born and raised in Anchorage and I left when I was 14 and I, I just come back to Alaska in the summers now. Do you think that sort of growing up someplace like Alaska sort of inspired a love for the outdoors and nature or is Anchorage does it no it's like just like a city but it's colder in the winter and darker I mean do you think that sort of being there yeah kind of inspired sort of 
the desire to go on trail and all those things. Yeah, I do. It's funny, Anchorage is a city, but I mean, people in rural Alaska would disagree with me. Anchorage is a city, but it does feel like you're in Alaska. (laughs) People in rural Alaska love to talk shit on Anchorage. They're like, it's not Alaska, but you can see it from there. Uh, (laughs) But I I, I disagree. I think that uh, Anchorage feels really different from other cities. Alaska feels a little like a different country, which I really, it's really nice. But uh, yeah, so Anchorage has all these green belts. Basically, it sprawls. And in the sprawl are just huge forests and lakes and creeks and the creeks run with salmon and there's grizzly bears and uh, black bears and you can hear wolves howling in the mountains or at least I did when I was a kid and there's moose everywhere and um, you know it snows a ton in the winter and and right outside the city is just wilderness forever forever all the way to the rest of the state it just starts immediately and it just goes forever and um I definitely grew up I think growing up I was kind of feral I didn't really have parents so I was like homeless sometimes I was in foster care for two years and um when I did have a place I didn't really have a parent figure because my mom is schizophrenic and so I'm I spent a lot of time like in the woods just hanging out with the trees and felt this sort of like kinship like the trees here sort of raised me in a way like I felt very like nurtured by them as a child and really connected and I think that's just a very human like we are animals you know and we are really connected we are just like little mammals and we are just as connected to the earth as any other animal and I think it's there for all of us you know if we don't feel it currently I definitely think it's possible and a really wonderful thing to feel like that sense of connection. But I think I, I definitely felt it growing up here. And um, I think it's like drawn me back to nature throughout my life. And it's been like a really grounding force. Nice. And, and do you have any, any, uh, what are you going to do? Where do you spend your winters? I mean, do you, is, is that an adventure time for you? Or are you, what, what do you have planned for uh, when it's too snowy in Anchorage? <laughs> I've been, yeah, I've been spending, yeah, I'm too much of a wimp to spend my winters in Alaska as an adult. Uh, I, uh, although I, I want to try one of these winters, but, um, yeah, I, I have a feeling I am just too wimpy. I spend the winters in Southern Arizona, <laughs> which is not cold. Um, yeah, I love the, the desert Southwest a lot. And, um, yeah, I spend a lot of time there too. So I, so the last few years I've, just been writing a lot mostly so I haven't done any like really long adventures like I've done a few like month-long adventures or like couple week adventures but mostly I've just been writing have you done any similar routes in Arizona that you this like kind of the same style that you're doing in Alaska of like just finding sort of off the beaten path treks I haven't um I think because in Arizona there's already routes that exist that I could hike uh so I have not um yeah, I know Brett Tucker made this really cool desert route that one could potentially do in winter uh, that would be fun to maybe try parts of, but I'm not sure. Um, not sure about the water situation. You also have quite a bit more like private property, right, and whatnot in uh, in Arizona, right, which might make it a little harder to do like a long route at least, right? I, I don't know, but I, that seems like it would be an issue versus Alaska. There's actually so much public land in Arizona. It's really cool. Yeah. There it's just at low elevation. There's not much water. 
a lot of the water is Tanahas, which is just like, you know, depressions in the rock that fill with rain. So those are really contingent on whether or not it's rained recently. <laughs> so it's hard to, you know, and then it, uh, yeah, just all the different elevations in Arizona have their own challenges. Well, Kara, it's been really great talking to you. I mean, honestly, this is kind of amazing topics that we definitely never talked about on the podcast before from the trains to whatever. Um, and again, really excited for your book. Do you want to tell everyone where they can get their book and where they can find you like social media or any anywhere else? Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. You yeah. can get uh, both my books. Well, the first book is only on Amazon because I self-published it. <clears throat> the second book you can buy wherever you get your books. So um, you can get it online or you can get it at your local bookstore. I think there's a website. I think it's like bookshop.org that is all independent bookstores. Uh, yeah. So wherever you want. And then I'm mostly on Instagram and my Instagram is just carrot Quinn. Great. And, and I will say that it is a fantastic Instagram account and, uh, have enjoyed following it for many, many years. So, uh, so again, well, thanks for coming on carrot. It's been great speaking with you. Yeah. Thank Absolutely. you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Garrett. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at The SoCal Hiker, or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. On the next episode, we'll be talking to filmmaker and adventure cameraman Tyler Emmett. As always, thanks for listening.